I got it. Shoeless Joe Hardy. Is that what you're going to call him? Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. A little hoedown in honor of our new star. Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. What'd you say his name was? Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. He's going to call him Shoeless Joe. Team is Thorpe, you sure get some wonderful ideas. Oh, I got lots of ideas. Who came along in a puff of smoke? Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Strong as the heart of the mighty O. Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Lucky we to be having him. Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Just when the future was looking grim. Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe came a long, long way to be with us today. With arms of steel like Hercules. Feet as fleet as Mercury's. He'll fight for us, do right for us. He'll be a beacon light for us. He's Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Go! Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 24th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also, let everybody know that uh, we do have a number of folks joining us to listen to the live recording here. Our folks that are Patreon supporters over patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. Uh, if you would like to listen to us record uh, live on Sunday mornings, you can uh, join us over patreon.com slash Broadway Radio for more information. So, uh, Peter... We would yeah. not have these things without our listeners, and one of our dear friends and dear listeners is John Rubenstein, and he has uh, got coming up a reading of August Wilson's Joe Turner Come and Gone, and it's going to be on uh, Facebook and Instagram. That's what the IG means. Uh, 8 p.m. on Wednesday the 27th. So uh, give us a primer on what is... Uh, Joe Wilson, uh, August Joe. Wilson's <laughs> Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Well, uh, this is a play that isn't done that much. Uh, I think it's because it had a very short Broadway run. I do think the Broadway production wasn't nearly as good as the production I later saw at the Pittsburgh Public Theater, and that's when the play really resonated to me. Now, of course, as most everybody knows, August Wilson wrote uh, 10 plays, each dealing with the decade of the 20th century. Uh, it was called The Century Cycle, in fact. And this is the one from the 20s. And I am really looking forward to hearing it again, because as I say, that Broadway production left something to be desired. But I know it's a terrific, terrific play. This one deals with um, the fact that in the 20s, there were still people around who had been enslaved, literally enslaved, um, before the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War. And um, now these people, of course, are very old, and uh, but they're still around, and they still have a lot of memories of what happened. So there's a plenty of situations here that are very, very dramatic. And as always, August Wilson really had a tremendous ability to get into people's characters. Anybody who's seen any one of his other plays, and I hope all of you have, and I imagine you have because they get done quite a bit, uh, will know that that's the case. And the really special thing about August Wilson is that he only had a ninth grade education. 
And he was self-educated. He went to um, the library every day and read books and learned himself what he needed to know. And that's really something when you think of it. So um, any of you out there who uh, feel you don't have enough education, well, do it on your own. You can do it. Um, yes, you can't go to the library at the moment, but we do have the internet, as you well know. And um, you might very much get involved there and find out everything you need to know, just as August Wilson did. But anyway, um, this play uh, is going to um, be one of those um, Zoom uh, broadcasts. And so you'll be able to see everybody looking like Hollywood Squares, I guess. <laughs> and um, it'll be uh, very, very fine, I am sure. But uh, don't miss this opportunity to see one of these plays that isn't done terribly often. Now's your chance. And with uh, John Rubenstein. Yes, indeed. So, uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone uh, leads us to our topic that uh, <laughs> so many characters in Broadway plays and musicals are named Joe. Isn't that true, Peter? Oh, sure. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is Joe Josephson, who um, is in Merrily We Roll Along. He's the, the big shot producer. And um, ironically enough, he was originally played by Jason Alexander, who later became very famous for playing a schlubby guy on Seinfeld. It's so interesting that when Harold Prince saw him, he saw him as a figure of authority, somebody who said to the young songwriters, this there's not a tune you can hum. There's not a tune you go bum de bum de dum. So, um, in the original script, and it's shown up in a lot of uh, revivals, what you see in the second scene of the show, where um, Mary is going to talk to Charlie and say she wishes things were like they were originally, mm. they're in a, a, a posh restaurant. And what happens is that Joe Josephson comes in. And he's penniless and perhaps even homeless. And they get him out of there really fast. That was in the original script that I read way back in 1981. But for some reason, they dropped that. But um, I think it's a fascinating thing to see how uh, we see later how powerful Joe Josephson was. We really get the impression he's a David Merrick type and a Cameron McIntosh type. But um, all things considered... Huh. You know, show business is a funny business, needless to say. And uh, top billing one day, next day you're touring in stock type thing. So, um, but uh, that's one of the Joes that really come to mind as being a memorable Joe in a, a Broadway musical. Of course, you know, perhaps the biggest Joe of all is the one who sings Old Man River and Showboat. Mm. Um, a terrific um a terrific um, song, needless to say, and a terrific performance. And um, whether you see the 36 movie or the 51 movie, um, it's it's really very well done in both pictures. So, um, and uh, uh, one of the classic songs of all time. You know, I was just reading the other day. This is really amazing to me. Where was I reading this? Oh, I know. Uh, I was reading the Flower Drum Songs book. Okay. Flower Drum Songs plural, <laughs> because um, there's a book that deals with both the original 1958 production and uh, the revival that David Henry Wang did. So that's why it's called Flower Drum Songs. Anyway, when they started, when Rogers and Hammerstein started working on that show, they had together, or apart, written 94 musicals. Wow. Wow. Is that incredible? Is that incredible? 
It seems impossible. And I've got to, I've got to do a search and see if that's really accurate, but that's maybe a typo, but that's what it actually said in the book. And I mean, that was incredible to me to see that uh, they had their names or had worked, you know, a song here or there or something like that um, in 94 shows. So anyway, one of those shows was showboat and um, certainly Joe in showboat is um, most memorable on the other side of the spectrum. Of course, there's Senator Joe, Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, I get a lot of mail because in one of my books, I talked about Senator Joe, which, um, I, I discovered one night while walking home there, I was walking on eighth Avenue and I, I saw a whole group of people under the marquee of the Neil Simon theater. I didn't know what they were doing there. The sign was still up for Kenny, um, Loggins, uh, celebrate me home. What, what are all these people doing there? So I walked <laughs> in and I found out that they were doing Senator Joe. I went to the box office, asked for a ticket. They gave me one. I walked in, you know, saw half the show it was really terrible, especially the famous scene called Fatty Acids, where you see acids dancing around Joe McCarthy's <laughs> stomach. But anyway, the thing is, I in one of my books, I, I pointed out that um, the marquees weren't even up for the show. And so many people have sent me a picture of the marquee that was up for the show. But here's the thing. Um, it was only up on the other side. So there I was on 8th Avenue, and Kenny Loggins was still up. But if you had approached it from the uh, Broadway side, walking up towards 8th Avenue, hmm. you would have seen a marquee. But they only had enough money for one. The show closed after three previews. I saw uh, the first one on Friday night, and after Saturday night, it was over. So... um so that's a, a very different Joe that uh, went on. Ironically enough, um, <laughs> John Rubenstein actually played Grandpa Joe mm-hmm. in his uh, yeah. last Broadway role mm-hmm. in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And um, when I introduced him at the Theater World Awards, I really had a very good time because um, I don't know if you remember, but if you, as you're looking at the stage, okay, he was in a bed very high up. Uh, yeah. they, it was it was almost to the um, to the, the top of the stage um, that he was very high up, and I pointed out that when he uh, made his Broadway debut in Pippin, he was talking about a corner of the sky, and here he was. He found it. He had a corner of the sky because he was up <laughs> so high. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, and I was lucky enough to see John in the pre-Broadway tryout of Pippin at the Kennedy Center in Washington, and he really made a wonderful impression. A wonderful impression. So. Uh, we'll all look forward to Joe Turner's on Wednesday. <laughs> Michael, you have any favorite Joes? Well, I did want to say first that the one in Showboat is is really iconic uh, because of his character and that incredible song that he sings, which we've mentioned before, that uh, is such a part of the American, the fabric of American culture that some people apparently don't realize it was written for a musical and think it was an actual folk folk song. Uh, Old Man River is, is an iconic, brilliant, amazing song that gives so much weight uh, as the basis for that show uh, showboat. I I think it's, it's reprised several times. Uh, Some might say maybe a little too often (laughs) depending on the version, but it, but it is so, perfect and so wonderful for the character um joe is a name that i think was once fairly common for uh, african-american characters uh especially during a certain period and so you also have uh as peter pointed out you have joe in carmen jones uh 
And that's interesting because Carmen Jones is based on the opera Carmen. And in the original opera, which is set in Spain, the character's name is Don Jose. Mm -hmm. So that's perfect. And I love the way the... um, the characters, the character names in Carmen, the opera, were transformed for the for the musical. Carmen is still Carmen, but uh, Don Jose is Joe. Um, Husky Miller, uh, <laughs> the the prize fighter, uh, in the original is Escamillo. <laughs> I always thought that was a great one. And then there's a, the, a few of the minor characters as well. Um, so many Joes uh, when you think about it, because again, it, it was a common name, uh, very uh, maybe more so in the past than now. Uh, the most happy fella um, actually has. Two, uh, two Joes and one potential Joe, <laughs> because uh, you have the character. Yeah, you have the character Joe, uh, who we never learn his last name, but he certainly figures uh, very prominently in the part in in the in the plot, um, and he sings a song uh, about himself called Joey, 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 which is a, one of the most beautiful songs Frank Lesser ever wrote. Um, and as I say, he really, uh, he's, he's definitely a catalyst for the whole, really everything that happens in the plot almost. Uh, but then you have, um, also, uh, one of Tony's servants is named Giuseppe. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's Joe. And then finally, uh, there's a point where Tony is envisioning, uh, married life and having children, and what? And he mentions some of the names. It's like he's already got the names of his children picked out, and um, one of them is Giuseppe. Uh, so, <laughs> so there again. Oh, and another uh, name that he has picked out is Matilda, which I think is kind of cute at the moment because that's the name of the mother of the Cuomo brothers, uh, Andrew and Chris. <laughs> so I think that's pretty sweet. <laughs> and of course we had a musical by that name too. Um, there was a yeah. novel called stay away, Joe. Um, and some of you might say, wait, 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 isn't that an Elvis Presley movie? Uh, it is in fact, but long before the Elvis Presley movie, there was a musical called whoop up. Um, the first original cast album I ever heard that made me say, Oh, they're not all wonderful. Um, it's uh, a very strange show, and uh, but uh, there is a Joe in there, and Susan Johnson, uh, who we remember from The Most Happy Fella, is urging Joe to stay away because he's bad news for her. I mean, she's very much in love with him, and he's not reciprocating in the way that she wants, and so she tells him to stay away, Joe. Um, Whoop Up got a CD release uh, about 30 years ago that was uh, hilarious because they, they put on uh, so many of the cover versions of songs um, that were recorded, even one by Marie Chevalier. I mean, it was really quite bizarre. But anyway, um, stay away, Joe, if you watch the Elvis Presley movie, and I defy you to stay with it. But anyway, if you stay with it for about five minutes, you will actually hear the term Whoop Up. There are two Joes and Damn Yankees. Uh, Joe Boyd, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, aging um, fan of the Washington Senators, whom uh, Mr. Applegate turns into Joe Hardy, um, who turns out to be uh, quite a ball player, but is loyal to his wife. And uh, that's why the devil enlists Lola, uh, who um, 
who, after all, uh, sold herself to the devil a long time ago because, as she says, I was the ugliest woman in Providence, Rhode Island. So um, she has to get him to agree to stay on. And uh, one of the great lines of all time, after she sings, whatever Lola wants, Lola gets and fully expects that he's going to fall into her arms mm. when he says, but if, a, if it were you, I promised to come home to, you'd want me to, wouldn't you? Whoa. And that's when she realizes uh, he's for real. And it's very funny because if you watch the movie of Damn Yankees, and I think you should, um, you will actually hear Gwen Verdon drop her Spanish accent at that moment mm-hmm. because she is so shocked that this has happened. And she, and she has such respect for him that that's the way he feels. Of course, the devil has a different take on it, but that's another story there. And of course, we had for a very short period of time, a Joe in Marilyn uh, the musical, uh, because Joe DiMaggio, uh, who played for the Yankees, um, a, a Hall of Famer, um, still has the longest hitting streak of any uh, baseball player in the season. He hit in 56 straight games. Certainly, I don't think it's going to be broken this season, I'll tell you, but that's another story. Um, but anyway, Scott Bakula, just starting out, played Joe DiMaggio, and I thought he was rather good. Hmm. There's um, a reference to a third Joe in Damn Yankees because they sing the song Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe, which is uh, in reference. Well, it's supposedly mainly in reference to to Joe Hardy. Right. But then there's also the the reference to Shoeless Joe Jackson. Right. uh, And and it's funny, uh, Joe, it seems like it was the go to name for if you wanted to have a character who was kind of like just a regular guy. Uh, maybe even more than John. A regular Joe. That's an expression. Yeah, a reg- <laughs> regular Joe. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like, uh, you, I, I forget if Peter has mentioned it already, but Joe in Allegro, he's supposed to be kind of like every man. That's right. Uh, and I'm sure that, they, that that's why they picked the name. Uh, and then there are so many others. There's um, uh, Golden Boy mm-hmm. and mm. uh, uh, Pal Joey. He's He's a little different i mean he's not so much in, <laughs> he's not so much in every man he's more of a anti-hero i suppose oh, he sure is but um uh yeah and joseph and the amazing technic technicolor dream code i've uh i love it that um sometimes they actually call him i think once or twice they actually call him joe <laughs> uh you know because of course the sensibility of the show show is so fun and so modern and the music is so so poppy uh that they don't always use his full name uh but usually they do but i think at least once uh i i I think some of this has to do with the fact that J is a very strong letter. You, that famous mm. Neil Simon thing, the words with a K are funny, but J is a strong and Joe, of course, is one syllable. It has punch. And I guess if you need a rhyme, uh, Joe is a good one to rhyme with. I'm not saying I can even think of one now where Joe is right. a rhyme, but nevertheless, uh, the fact remains that it would be an easy one to rhyme because there are so many O rhymes and singers love uh, to have vowel sounds at the end of songs because uh, they can hold the note better than uh, uh, the, the carousel, which I don't think does have a Joe. Uh, uh, Oscar Hammerstein always said that he felt that uh, what's the use of wondering didn't have more of a life because it ended with the word talk. And uh, you hmm. can't sing the word talk mm-hmm. 
very well. So, you know, who knows? Anyway. Well, Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Mo is the rhyme that leaps to mind. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. So, um, so, and you know, this will bring us to another topic because, of course, there's Joe in some, in some like it hot sugar, depending on when you saw the show, it was originally called Sugar. And um, when it was, was touring with Tony Curtis many moons later, and when it was done in London with Tommy Steele, it was, it reverted back to some like it hot, but it was originally Sugar. And there you have one of the uh, guys, uh, dressing up uh, as a woman. His name is Joe, but he becomes Josephine. Mm-hmm. But where uh, we found out some this week that a little news on the Some Like It Hot uh, reboot, remake, what mm-hmm. I guess um, uh, certainly it's not just the uh, Julie Stein, Bob Merrill musical, Peter Stone musical we'll be seeing. It's a new one by um, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And who's doing the book? Do we know? Uh, I, I had it a second ago, but okay. it's going it's going to be skipping its uh, Chicago tryout and coming yeah, directly to Broadway yeah. in the fall of 2021, which uh, was uh, surprising here uh, uh, to all of us because we we really expected it to uh, to do that. I think Matthew Lopez is doing the book. Oh, that's right. Mm, that sounds right. Yeah. Um, ironically enough. Um, and Casey Nicola uh, directing and choreographing. Which is good news. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly one of the best. And uh, wouldn't we all love to have his paychecks? Um, well, not now, of course, but you know what I mean, uh, until this happened. But uh, but it's really too bad about Chicago. And, and um, was it Chris Jones who wrote an article recently saying that he thought that Chicago theaters would um open up sooner than yes. Broadway theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was Chris. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, so maybe it's not a good idea to skip a tryout, um, but you know, it could, money's tight, you know, and uh, costs money to go out of town. I bet that was the prevailing decision because um, Lord knows it's going to be hard to get people to invest in Broadway. I, I wonder if, I wonder if it's just that uh, it's going, I'd imagine when Broadway reopens, it's going to be international news. Well, sure. Um, and, and I think that people want to capitalize on, on that news. Yeah, although, I, I mean, it'll, as, as many people said, it'll, it probably won't be on one day. So it, it'll be in stages. So in, in that sense, it, it, you know, but I guess there will be an event that, mm. will be a, that they will be able to focus on as a reopening, hopefully. Yeah. Exactly. Um, as far as Matthew Lopez, it's interesting. If you think of uh, Matthew Lopez in terms of the inheritance, uh, you, it, he might not be the first name that would come to mind uh, for writing a book, uh, you know, a, a new book for, for a new musical of Some Like It Hot. But um, he also wrote a wonderful play called The Legend of Georgia McBride. Mm-hmm. which uh, is um, partly about a uh, a very uh, very average straight uh, apparently straight uh, heterosexual uh, guy living uh, in the south somewhere who winds up getting in touch with his feminine side and and realizing that he um, has talent and uh, he has the, just the, this urge to become a, a female impersonator, um, which is not the same situation <laughs> as mm-hmm. uh, some like a hot sugar uh, by any means. But I wonder if, if that is some a part of the reason why uh, 
why Matthew was thought of for this project. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, who knows who, if, if they went to him or if he went to them, but, uh, it could be interesting to see how that turns out because I really, really enjoyed that play very, very much. And one of the great images of, uh, of the decade, uh, <laughs> his girlfriend doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And she finds out and she comes to the club, not unlike uh, the situation in Chorus Line where the parents come in, uh, to the club and um, find out that their son is um, in drag. Um, but what happens in Judge McBride, she comes to the club. I don't remember what gets her there, but she comes to the club and he comes out and he's wearing his breast forms. Um, and that's what he has on just casually. You know, he hasn't gotten dressed just, but there's his breast forms. And what could be a greater example of femininity at, than that? And um, to have her see him like that is really startling, to say the least. Yeah. So it's a great image and a very smart um situation so um so yeah let's uh, i'm i'm rooting for some like it hot though um i've always wondered where these guys got those clothes <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah uh, peter by the way do you know um I, I i don't remember if i ever looked it up uh did they uh was it changed from sugar to some like it hot for the musical was that because uh, initially they didn't have the rights to the title and then they did? Or no, I, 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 that was an era when Broadway wanted to brand itself as something new. That oh, you were okay. seeing the same old thing. Okay. Um, yeah, um, as I always say, um, if Ilya Darling were produced today, it would be called Never on Sunday. Um, hmm. Not that Ilya Darling would be produced today, but that's another story. But um, it would be Never on Sunday, the musical. But uh, back in those days, Broadway had this real goal of showing that you were getting something new and exciting. And um, that isn't the case anymore. Uh, when we were talking about title songs, I may have mentioned the fact that uh, I don't think there is necessary today because the titles of the title songs, in essence, they serve that purpose of selling the show because, oh, Honeymoon in Vegas. Ah, yes, I saw that movie. Oh, I know what this is. So I think that really um, carries the day. <laughs> so uh folks in our chat room uh, Stephen bell throws in here uh, some of them we've covered already how about joe and most happy fellow joe boyd and damn yankees and are you including joe sullivan <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> joe sullivan lesser of course uh the the uh wife of frank lesser uh, and who has shepherded so many, uh, so mm. many of the lesser projects after Frank's uh, passing. By the and, way, parenthetically, I, I may have mentioned I recently obtained uh, an original LP, uh, three LP copy of uh, of Most Happy Fella, and it's I, I really treasure it. And it came with a, a wonderful book booklet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's the size of a. Uh, of, of an LP basically uh, mm -hmm. that that's the dimensions of it. And um, I mean, I'm sure many of our readers know this, but Lynn Lesser, right. The first wife of Frank Lesser was one of the, was one of the co-producers and her name is all over it. And her photo, you know, along with everyone else's photo and bios in the, in the booklet. And I'm just thinking it really must've been, incredibly painful for her 
to see uh, her husband falling in love with his leading lady during this show that she produced. Um, you know, so things like that happen. You know, real life continues while show business is going on, and I would imagine that must have been extremely awkward and painful for her. Hmm. So, <laughs> um, Nikki Juven also in our chat room is uh, mentioning Go 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 Joe for uh, our Joseph the Amazing Technicolor mm. Dreamcoat right. possibility. Um, and uh, what else do we have in our Jill lists? Uh, Peter, is there any any others that you hadn't mentioned? No, but I was very glad that Michael mentioned Joe from Golden Boy. Golden Boy um, was the third Strauss and Adams show and uh, produced in 1964 with Sammy Davis. And it's a beautiful, beautiful score. And ironically, what happened was um, it was a terribly difficult tryout. Uh, Philadelphia, Boston, Detroit. Um, it went through so much chaos. So many songs were added. So many were dropped. Um, Sammy Davis asked that a song be written for him called Yes, I Can, because he had just written his autobiography called Yes, I Can. Um, it came uh, When I saw the show in Boston, it was in. Uh, a lot of the songs were dropped as time went on. They even dropped the concept of what uh, he was. He was originally considered to be a piano player, um, and uh, that's what his father wanted him to be, but um, he wanted to be a boxer. And the problem is that if you box and break your hand, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to play the piano. And eventually they even dropped that idea. of They just made him a wayward youth. And that's, that's what he was. He was just a discontented guy um, who just couldn't find himself in the world. But the interesting thing about the album was that um, when they recorded it, and they used to record on the Sunday um, after the show opened, he didn't feel he was in good voice. And as a result, many moons later, he went back and recorded some of his songs. So if you get the CD of uh, the show, you're going to hear his revisionist uh, takes on uh, his songs. And one, in fact, uh, can you see it? Um, Can't you see it? In fact, even uh, has a very different uh, ending. But um, a lot of people, including me, maybe because I grew up with it, I'll grant you that, prefer the original LP uh, version because even though his voice is a little more raw, well, so is the character. So there's more of a character voice to it. And I remember the first time my friend Paul Roberts told me that when he got the CD, he got it before I did, uh, he said, in fact, he got a Tower Records and he came over here and and, uh, he listened to it while I was out. And he said, this is a a different take on um, uh, this is not the album we know. And I said, Oh, I'm sure it is. He said, well, listen, and he puts it on the first cut and Sammy Davis sings summer. And I said, Oh, it is different. You could tell right away. It was a different take. Um, So, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful score uh, in all ways. And I really do believe that anybody who doesn't know golden boy really should get a hold of it. Uh, even if it's on the CD, even if you don't have a turntable anymore, because it really is an extraordinarily worthwhile score. Really, Charles Strauss, who will be 92 next week, mm. um, is certainly one of our most valuable players for all the wonderful scores he gave us. Um, because even when the shows apparently didn't work, I didn't see the original rags. I was out of town working on something else. Um, but I mean, boy, you hear that music, and that's really something. So, uh um, I, I, ironically, I found a CD I had that I didn't even know I had of uh, You Never Know, not the Cole Porter show, but he wrote a show called You Never Know 
uh, that was done at Trinity in Providence. And I went to see it. And I remember there was a song in it called Music um, that was just terrific. And um, I intend to listen to it today, that uh, CD that I, I don't know where it came from, how I got it, um, how I got it, found it, came by it. <laughs> um, I don't know. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that today. You know, I just looked this up and I guess maybe I knew this and forgot it, but this is so clever. Um, in the original play of Golden Boy, Joe's name is I know. Joe, Bonap <laughs> Joe Bonaparte, Bonaparte <laughs> and right. he's supposed to be Italian. Um, right. But in the musical, he's a, a black man and his name is changed to Joe Wellington, which yes, of course, <laughs> Wellington and Bonaparte Part, were, right. were the, the famous uh, his historical opponents at the Battle right. of Waterloo. And, and I know, that, isn't that great? That's quite, quite, quite clever. There, well, yeah. I have to uh, say that that would be a, a really good trivia question, wouldn't it now? <laughs> <laughs> it would have been. <laughs> so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, question, which I, you know, I, I was surprised a little um, because I thought more people were going to get this. But um, anyway, a simple spoken line in the first scene of a famous musical was the impetus for the show's composer lyricist to write an entire song for the film version using that line. What's the song in the film? Well, if uh, this came to mind because I recently saw Hello, Dolly in Philadelphia with Carolee Carmelo, and there she is saying, just leave everything to me. And of course, that's what became the song in the film of Hello, Dolly that Barbara Streisand sang. So Greg Christensen was the first to get it, but followed by Tony Janicki, <laughs> Robert Berger, Robert Lobiondo, Brigadude, Richard Carey, and Ingrid Gammerman. So, so I thought that was a rather easy question, and yet a lot of people had a hard time with it. So this one, I think, is extraordinarily hard, and we'll see if people have an easy time with it. Because a few <laughs> weeks ago when I mentioned the one from Finian's Rainbow, I thought that was going to flummox everybody, and I got like 15 answers. So I think this one's tough. What do Barbara Streisand, Maria Karnilova, and Peter Townsend have in common? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> they all have vowels in their name. That's right. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, uh, you know, I'm even ashamed to even uh, do this one because I think it's so hard. But let's see. Let's see. Maybe maybe people will uh, catch on to what I'm getting at here. But um, I, I think this one's really rough. So anyway, we shall see what we shall see. If you would like to send hate mail to Peter about That's this right. trivia question, yeah, yeah. email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. I, I deserve it. And we'll let you know if you, in fact... Uh, have a clue of what Peter's asking. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. All righty. So uh, <laughs> we talked about Some Like It Hot heading to Broadway, but uh, uh, Shaman and Whitman, th they're kind of busy because um, during the Bombshell concert event, which was uh, a uh, recording that was about five years ago, that was a, a live performance for uh, an Actors Fund benefit, uh, went online to um, be a benefit for the Actors Fund uh, here. And just as the concert kicked off, we got a, a press release that Smash, which is the television show <laughs> that created the bombshell concert right. It, right. the bombshell is the show within the show from right. the smash television show 
the smash television show is coming to Broadway in an indetermined schedule right now, but they've got sure. like serious uh, Steven Spielberg behind it and, you know, Shaman and Whitman and things. So this is, this shouldn't be just talk. Um, you should never end a song no, talk with those people involved. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What were you going to say, Peter? Well, ironically enough, um, my friend Richard Norton was clearing out his apartment and he gave me a ton, a ton of clippings that he had clipped from the 60s and 70s when he was a young boy from the Times announcing all these musicals that were coming in. Uh, Mrs. Aris Goes to Paris. You Can't Get There From Here, which was Richard Rogers' show that he was doing with um, the almost unknown Eric Siegel at that point, who would have a big success with Love Story and far less of a success with Home Sweet Homer, um, and deservedly so, but that's another story. Um, and um, all these musicals that were announced, um, a musical of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, um, a musical called Schubert Alley, based on the Brothers Schubert book, um, which sounds exciting to me, uh, musicals that eventually did happen, but under completely different auspices, um, Quasimodo, uh, which Lionel Bart was going to be doing, um, uh, Tango Magador by Candor and Ebb, uh, which somehow morphed into curtains uh, as time went on. And it was just so amazing to see all these things and with specific dates. Uh, it will be, it, it's opening at the Winter Garden on May 24th, that type of stuff. It's just so amazing, the, the best laid plans of all these shows. But your point is well taken. With Steven Spielberg, it might very well um, happen. Of course, we did hear along the line that Steven Spielberg was going to make a movie of Cats. We heard that he was going to make a movie of Carnival. And of course, neither of those happened either. So one never knows, do one. But the fact remains that um, even though Smash was not a smash in the ratings, when you think how many people, the millions, the millions of people who saw Smash, you know, by Broadway standards, <laughs> that could run for decades if anybody who saw Smash and was interested in Smash um, came to New York and said, oh, I want to see that show. So uh, it does have a, a blue chip title, even though the series was not uh, a barn burner. Well, I think it's fascinating. I believe that even while Smash was still on TV or right afterwards, there had been talk that they would someday bring Bombshell right. to Broadway, yeah. that they would flesh it out as a complete show and bring that to Broadway. And I think that that, that talk continued until fairly recently until we got this announcement that they're going to do smash instead and i was discussing it with a friend as to why uh you know maybe they changed direction and he said well i i think you know maybe the the easiest uh the simplest reason, maybe the most obvious reason is, is, is the, the actual one just because they think it would be easier to do it that way than to flesh out the whole musical as a story of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, but also, uh, you know, in the, in these postmodern meta times, I think maybe um, it's, uh, they would think it would better to be able to include it as a show within the show and then be able to comment on it more. So I think it's probably a combination of those two reasons. Would you, does that sound right to you guys? Yeah. 
Sure, sure. Um, uh, I will say this, though. Um, I wonder if some of the uh, issue is that they don't feel that um, they can cons uh, sustain a Marilyn Monroe musical. Um, we do, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we did have a Marilyn Monroe musical uh, back in the 80s uh, that was a, a big right. failure. But I'll tell yeah. you this. If they're looking for a Marilyn Monroe for their show, they've got to get Alicia Soper, who uh, did Marilyn, Mum and Me, Luke Yankee's play in a reading, and it was recently um, uh, shown online. Um, I've never seen anybody portray Marilyn Monroe as spectacularly as this woman, Alicia Soper, S-O-P-E-R. And um, by all means, uh, make sure you uh, audition her, um, all you people involved with uh, the Smash musical. Make oh. sure. Interesting. Matt Tamanini was uh, talking on today on Broadway with uh, Ashley Steves about um, why you would do um, Smash versus Bombshell. And they were talking mm. about that uh, this storyline of Smash much more lends itself to the, uh, the lead into the songs mm. uh, and gives the characters more depth. And they also uh, mentioned Betsy Wolf, who just had a baby this week. Yay, Betsy. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, Betsy indeed. Wolf might be a good uh, Marilyn Monroe. But um, she's terrific. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, it, it's really exciting to get. Uh, you know, um, press releases and announcements that are positive about looking forward to the reopening of Broadway. Um, we also got other press releases this week that uh, DKC, O&M, the uh, big press powerhouse press uh, representatives, uh, were very busy on Wednesday afternoon after they announced two different uh, competing. You know, I, I, I thought that they were competing, Michael, but doesn't seem like they are. So Broadway.com is going to um, have show of shows. Broadway.com salutes the Tony Awards Sunday, June 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And Broadway On Demand, the newly uh, launched streaming platform for theater devotees, are going to have uh, a um, one-hour event that's starting at 6 p.m. 6 p.m.? Yeah. So I'm um, looking at the press releases right now from O&M. One is at uh, Broadway On Demand at 6 p.m. for one hour, and they stated it in the press release. And then Broadway.com is at 7 p.m. They don't specify that it's going to be one hour, but then we talked about last week that uh, Greece is going to be have on CBS at 8 p.m. as a sing-along thing to replace the Tony Awards and Okay, so um, uh, so interesting, but the Broadway On Demand is going to be on broadwayondemand.com and on tonyawards.com, uh, and the broadway.com thing is going to be, uh, I, I don't know if it's going to be at broadway.com or back on YouTube where they've done their other things. It says both, uh, and you're absolutely right, James. Yes, once is six and once is seven, so... Whether there will be an overlap, well, that's that's good because that would have been unfortunate if they had if they had been completely overlapped. And the uh, Broadway.com thing is says it's in uh, co-presenting with the uh, American Theatre Wing and the Broadway League, so it seems as though both of these things are uh, endorsed per se. 
by the official Tony Awards folks, but um, at least it'll give us uh, some things to, uh, you know, uh, mm. celebrate that, that Sunday that we usually uh, start off with uh, a nice uh, brunch and uh, party until four in the morning. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I wonder if uh, DKC O&M, they, they usually have the big party. I wonder if th- their big party is going to be virtual this year or sure. if they'll have uh, Tony Ward face masks and keep everybody at six feet. So. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the Drama Desk also had some announcements this week that they're going to present a Hal Prince Lifetime Achievement Award uh, beginning this year with the first recipient of this award is Hal Prince himself, who uh, passed away earlier this year. Uh, and um, that, I mean, to, a Hal Prince Award certainly is uh, you know it it's certainly something that should be uh should be done and then we also had uh, information out of the globe theater uh in the uk that um shakespeare's globe theater potentially might close because of what's happening with this uh the global pandemic this is it uh, would seem to me uh when i when i read that 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 would be the prime example of something that really major lights of the british theater especially could get together and have a fundraiser for that would get a tremendous response because of the historic nature of the the enterprise and all the people who work there so um there's nothing else like it yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah have you been? Have you been, Michael? No, no, no. I uh, have. Yeah, so have I. Uh, I always sit in the last row because um, <laughs> they're just benches. Yeah. And the last row is right up against the, the wall, wall, so you yeah. have some uh, support. But it's amazing to me how many people go there and stand. I mean, they're the groundlings, and uh, that's the uh, they really have replicated that theater. Uh, God bless Sam Wanamaker for making this happen. I'm so sorry he didn't um, live to see it actually happen, but he was the one who put the uh, um, the wheels in motion to make it happen. And uh, so it's, uh, uh, but I really, of course, Shakespeare plays uh, tend to be long, maybe not Macbeth, maybe not the comedy of errors, but they tend to be long and people actually stand right in front of the stage mm. uh, for a long, long time <clears throat> watching them. So, uh, but uh, I'll sit, thank you. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's such a wonderful experience to be there and to, and to feel that history, even though of course it's not the actual building, <clears throat> you can uh, certainly get the feel of the actual building, needless to say. And, and it does make a difference to, uh, to really see Shakespeare and thinking this is somewhat what it was like way back when. Sure. So, so that's great. So uh, on the flip side, we heard uh, really good news that the public theater had been uh, given a $4 million uh, grant of support from the federal government and is able to uh, keep operations going and keeping paying people, even though uh, public theater is not having any shows right at this moment, uh, and taking the pressure off of the public theater uh, to give us some time before uh, – uh, operations resume at the public theater and so that's also um a good thing to hear um let's talk about uh before we wrap up for today some uh plays on film certainly there's a number of uh shakespearean plays on film but what other plays on film are some of your favorites well i have to say that um 
that so many of the commercial comedies that uh, were made uh, in the 60s are show uh, are films that I love to watch. They always get criticized for being so stagey. Um, and I, I, that's something that doesn't bother me, I guess, because I'm a, really a creature of the theater rather than a creature of film. So, but, um, I, I never tire of watching Mary Mary because it's, it's such a witty, um, script by Gene Kerr. I will admit Debbie Reynolds is terrible in it, but <laughs> what you do have is Barry Nelson and Michael Rennie, who actually were the original cast members. So you're essentially seeing the original uh, performances. This is a show that um, has the same problem that Barefoot in the Park has, that essentially you find out that if a woman wants to have a happy marriage, she's got to really hide her real feelings every now and then. And that's a tough pill to swallow today, of course, of course. But there are so many witty lines in it that, uh, and I'm not going to divulge them because I want you to see the picture, which is now available on DVD um, from Rona Brothers. But it, it, it really takes us back to a time when there was so much sophistication in, um, in Broadway comedies. Uh, people read The New Yorker. People go to Goshen. I mean, it's, it's just quite wonderful to, uh, to hear these names. And uh, the, Bob McKelloway, the uh, leading man, is a, um, a book publisher. That's what he does for a living. Mary is an editor at the Ladies' Home Journal. I mean, so mm -hmm. these, you know, it, it, it's just very nice. So I like those. But I will say that the two greatest performances I have ever seen on film, interestingly enough, in the one-two punch, were both written by Tennessee Williams. And that is, I do believe the greatest performance on film uh, for an actress is Vivian Lee in Streetcar Named Desire. And in second place, I'd put Anna Magnani in The Rose Tattoo. Uh, magnificent performances both. And um, it's very hard once you've seen those to, uh, to see anybody else do those parts. Mm -hmm. But uh, Vivian Lee really has it down pat. So, so for dramas... Uh, that really um, is one that uh, strikes a, a tremendous good. And, uh, and of course, you get Marlon Brando's original performance. It's so interesting that that year in the Oscars that uh, Vivian Lee won uh, for playing Blanche, Kim Hunter won for playing Stella, Carl Malden won for playing Mitch. Hmm. Marlon Brando did not win because Humphrey Bogart won for the African Queen. And... That was somewhat of a surprise, and yet it wasn't a surprise because, in a way, this was a Lifetime Achievement Award. A lot of people thought that Brand um, Bogart should have won for Casablanca way back when, which, by the way, was also adapted from a play, um, huh. <laughs> one that never got produced called Everybody Comes to Rick's. Have I mentioned this about the Play It Again Sam thing? Have I talked about this? I don't recall. All right. So I met Murray... Um, Oh, I kind of remember his last name, uh, who wrote, who co-wrote the original play and Murray Burnett, I think his name was. Anyway, I met him and, um, and he had a script of his original play. And I said, oh, please, you must let me have it. And he said, sure. So um, I read it. And frankly, Casablanca is much better than this play. But, you know, there's so much consternation about what Rick says to Sam when he wants, as time goes by, to be played. And um, play it again, Sam, is the cliche. But if you watch the movie, it is never said mm, in yeah. the movie. Mm -hmm. You hear play it, you hear right. play it, Sam. Right, right. But you never hear play it again, Sam. And, of course, this became the title of a Woody Allen play, play it again, Sam. So you know what it is in the original Murray Burnett script? I swear, this is it. Play it, you dumb bastard. 
So <laughs> makes a good t-shirt. <laughs> so, uh, so the, anyway, um, those are some of my favorites. Michael, what do you got? Michael, how about you? Well, one could uh, write a whole book about just the film adaptations of Tennessee Williams because uh, it's so fascinating, partly because uh, these films were made at a time when, when censorship sure. was still very much with us. And, mm. uh, and it's interesting to see what was cut and what wasn't. And usually what was cut was anything that had anything remotely to do with homosexuality. Absolutely. Um, in uh, Streetcar, uh, you know, so much of it, so much of the screenplay is word for word from the, from the play. And in fact, I think the screenplay is actually credited to Tennessee Williams, um, even though there maybe have been another hand or two involved. But uh, what's cut out of that is uh, the point is that Blanche is supposed to carry this terrible, terrible guilt because she got married when she was very young to a, a young man who was also very young. And uh, it turned out that he was gay which she discovered one night when she uh, came upon him uh, alone with a, an older man. And she, she supposedly had no idea of, about this beforehand. And she freaks out and says something terrible, terrible, terrible to him, which causes him to go out and, and kill himself. So this is supposed to be key to her, her mental and emotional deterioration, as one can imagine how one would feel if one had said something that had caused someone else to kill themselves. Um, uh, and, but in the movie, uh, they have to really fudge it or they felt they had to fudge it. And uh, she doesn't, she just kind of says something to Mitch about, she tells him the story of her young husband and she just really focuses on him being weak. Uh, and it's so, it's so much less powerful. So that was an unfortunate change they had to make in a, in a movie that's otherwise really, really great. But then it, also interesting that the very ending uh, is also changed greatly. Uh, and that was because uh, in those days, um, you, uh, what happens is that we, oh, we don't actually see it, but, but, but um, Stanley essentially rapes Blanche. And uh, then after that, he, uh, the ending of the original play is that uh, Blanche gets set off to an insane asylum and Stella uh, has lines where she says she, she, um, she can't believe that what Blanche told her happened because if she could, she couldn't go on living with Stanley. So she simply chooses not to believe it um, or not to say that she believes it, uh, you know, whatever. So the last scene of the play is um, Blanche, um, excuse me, Stella and Stanley in each other's arms. And, uh, and Stanley is comforting Stella as, as Blanche is carted off to the insane asylum and he's saying, it's okay, baby, it's okay. And he's like stroking her, her back. And, but in the movie, um, Stella says something like, uh, 
Bland, uh, uh, Stanley calls for her, and then Stella says, I'm not going back in there, never, ever, ever again. And she takes her baby, and she runs upstairs uh, to stay with her neighbor. So that is obviously a really, really tremendous change that uh, they had to make for the for the screenplay. And I'm sure that uh, Williams must have been incensed about that, but he just realized that if it, you know if he didn't agree to it, that there was going to be no movie. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, there there is some fudging in the movie of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof oh, sure as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's as damaging in that but but yeah, it, that's a very good point yeah yeah because i've always just been uh you know sometimes i feel like that there didn't have to be homosexuality in all <laughs> of uh williams plays uh, uh but you know i mean historically he he served a, a great uh you know, he, he's that served a great function uh, for him to be the one who had the daring to go there. And, and 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 in general, I'm really very glad that he did. I just think that sometimes it's not necessary to the plot and maybe even a little confusing. And in in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I've always felt that the uh, the skipper um, uh, brick relationship is kind of questionable and i don't really completely understand it um but anyway that was fudged for the movie um which otherwise again otherwise is a great great movie with a superb cast of elizabeth taylor and paul newman and burl lives and uh, i also have always thought that um cat on a hot tin roof and the film of Long Day's Journey in Tonight are two examples where I would say, and I'm sure many people don't agree with me, but that they are actually improvements over the stage scripts in uh, the sense that they're leaner. And, um, and I think that some extraneous material and repetition from those original plays were, were cut out. Th- both of those plays are quite long, especially along this journey. And I, uh, there's, of course, lots of wonderful, wonderful material and character work in both of them. But I do think that there are points, several points that are made over and over in the place that don't necessarily need to be. So I, um, I think that, that as far as the actual scripts, uh, and you know, w- with that proviso that I mentioned about uh, Skipper and 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 Brick, that those are improvements in the films. So um, if you get a chance to to look at either of those, I think you'll you'll find re- really much to enjoy in terms of the adaptation as well as the performances. Well, uh, in terms of um, the censorship issue too, uh, Sweet Bird of Youth, the Tennessee Williams play, mm. uh, certainly did some changing at the end of the. Um, Yes, property because in uh, this is a one about a, a gigolo, a, a drifter. His name is Chance Wayne. You, you got to love uh, the names that Tennessee Williams gave his characters, and um, and he hooks up with uh, Alexandra Delago, and um, she's an older woman, and the sweet bird of youth has flown by her while he still has it. Um, but he gets into a lot of trouble uh, in in the town that he goes into, and. In the original play, at the end, the guy who runs the town, the unofficial um, guy who really has the power, um, has him castrated. But in the movie, 
they cut up his face. And, you know, really, um, the cutting up the face because it was Paul Newman's face is very effective. Um, I, I grant you there's a profound difference between uh, castration and cutting up a face, but let's face it, um, no pun intended, really, there wasn't. Um, the fact remains that um, I'm not saying castration is a wonderful thing to have happen, but the point is nobody knows. Um, you can keep that to yourself, but your face is something people see all the time. And as a result, you will wear those literal scars for the rest of your life and everybody will know that something bad has happened to you, that they're going to shy away from you and so on and so forth. So um, so in a, in a strange way, it's actually more powerful in the film than it is um, mm. in the stage show. In a strange way, I'll grant you. I was looking uh, at the American Film Institute. The AFI uh, has a number of different lists and uh, comparing back and forth between um, what's on their lists versus what we're talking about. The AFI actually has a list of 100 um, musicals on film, uh, the 100 best musicals on film, which, you know, more or less paralleled what we have been saying all along. That's, that's really nice that there are, they feel that there are that many that deserve a list. That's great. And uh, and uh, I caught myself here making a, a mistake that I wonder if others had made. And I was like, what about To Kill a Mockingbird? And, well, it, it was right. a film. It wasn't a play it, right. until, play until, recently, until well, recently. Well, th there was a, the, a play that Chris Sergel did um, mm, yeah. that certainly got done everywhere, uh, but Broadway, ironically enough. And uh, it's a very good representation of the, the Harper Lee novel, no question. Um, I... I I think with Aaron Sorkin did, um, uh, which uh, was a big hit at the Schubert until this happened, um, is is a fine, fine piece of work as well. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to mention one that's really bizarre, and that's Kiss Me Stupid, hmm. um, a movie from the mid '60s, and it actually is based on a play. It's based on an Italian farce. Um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll have Michael sometime uh, do the Italian pronunciation since <laughs> I'm so good at it, but uh, and I'm terrible at it. But um, what I love about Kiss Me Stupid, which is about two songwriters who are amateurs, and they um, Dean Martin winds up coming to town and. He actually is considered to be Dean Martin. They never say Dean Martin. They always say Dino. Um, <laughs> but it is Dean Martin. There's no question about that. He's coming through town, and the songwriters, uh, one of them runs the gas station, sees that he's there, and he purposely um, dismantles his car so that he has to stay overnight. And this terrible town climax nevada and i don't know if there's such a place but anyway that's the name of the town in the movie and uh they want him to stay there and he um very much is interested in having sex that night with somebody and he does get very interested in the dress form you know those dummy type things where people um so he sees the form of uh of uh the wife of the other um songwriter played by Ray Walston, better known as Mr. Applegate. And uh, he, he wants to know her. Well, they wind up getting a prostitute to play her part. And what's really interesting is the prostitute played by Kim Novak comes to the house. And that night she becomes a wife. She doesn't want to be a prostitute. She wants, she thinks about what it would be like to be a wife 
living in a, a, a marital situation. And not unlike there's got to be something better than this where the women dream of a better life and baby dream your dream where they dream of a better life. Um, she really gets that part. While the wife who has been sent away um, winds up actually playing her the prostitute's role for a night in essence. Well, this was a very controversial film in 1964-5 whenever it came out, and it was condemned by the Catholic Church, which is no surprise whatsoever. But I'll tell you, it always moves me because at the end of the movie, every human being who's been in that picture gets what he wants. And that's what's so great about it. I really do have tears in my eyes at the end because everybody has mm -hmm. a happy ending that nobody would conceive would be a happy ending um, when the picture started everybody's dream comes true. And I find that very, very moving. Now, again, a very controversial movie. Um, you will certainly see many uh, books that rate movies say that it stinks. And I understand that. But, um, but I really think it has that wonderful worth. Um, I also like Desk Set, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn doing a comedy, uh, a commercial comedy. Uh, and it's funny to watch it today because it deals with computers. It's probably the first script written about computers um, and how computers are going to uh, take over and people are going to be out of work. And you watch it and you say, well, yes and well, no. Um, <laughs> actually, the playwright uh, was quite prescient in many ways. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see in 1957, I think is when the movie came out, uh, what's wrong and what's right about uh, the computer uh, revolution that's just starting and of course the computer there you know takes up a whole room and you know and uh you know has all these strange sounds coming out of it that sound like you know chemicals being brewed in a laboratory and all that goes with that so uh, um what i don't like is what frank capra did with um broadway shows specifically you can't take it with you and arsenic and old lace uh, two wonderful properties that are much better than their movies because Frank Capra always had this idea of let me see what I can do with it to improve it. And um, and I think in those two instances, he didn't improve it at all, at all. So I'm not fans of those movies. You know what? I'd like to uh, end with uh, mentioning a movie that I don't think is really very well known at all, but I but I saw it for the first time not too long ago and it's it's really much better than i expected and that's all my sons hmm. it is good i watched it rather recently too yeah it's um uh, it's really interesting it uh 1948 and uh there's another there there we have another joe before we were talking yeah, about uh, i was thinking that goes from musicals but here we have joe keller uh, played really 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 well by edward g robinson mm -hmm. who was a wonderful actor who um uh you know maybe unfortunately got kind of stereotyped in certain type of roles and and uh, because he did those kinds of roles so well the tough guy thing mm -hmm. uh he 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 became um you know, almost a cliche in that sense, but he was very versatile. And uh, Chris Keller um, is just beautifully played by Burt Lancaster, a very, very natural performance uh, in that wonderful role. Uh, the big, um, I think, albatross, unfortunately, in that movie is for some strange reason, they gave the role of Kate Keller the pivotal role to a an actress named Mady Christians, who uh, was apparently Austrian and has quite a thick accent. Uh, and in fact, they even throw in a line uh, in in the movie uh, 
that she is not American to to justify that. So at least they they did that. But I, I I'm not sure why it bothers me. It just seems important for her to be a very all American character, and I don't know why they went so far afield um, to cast her when we. I'm sure we can all think of many other sure. uh, you know women at the time who would have been fine but uh, but the rest of the cast is is quite interesting howard duff is in it as george deaver frank mm-hmm. conroy as herb deaver arlene francis as sue bayless um and harry morgan who was so ubiquitous for so many years and so many things uh as frank luby so uh and uh, it's really it's really quite well done the, one interesting thing is that if if you start watching you you'll notice at the beginning there's a huge chunk of the play missing uh kind of a whole exposition section but they they uh, it's not uh terribly damaging because they they somehow managed to cover what's happening um you know in in what remains and and it opens with um with the uh, the Anne character uh, just about to arrive, and and the Burt Lancaster character of Chris is very very happy that that uh, she's going to be coming back, uh, and it, the direction I would say is is very good, and the acting, as I said, um, they they do make a decision to actually show us uh, some things that are just mentioned in the play, some pivotal things that happened uh you know we and we have flashbacks to the um uh well to the to really the catalyst for the whole drama which is the uh you know who was responsible for these uh defective uh airplane parts being sent out to the uh you know to the army and the air force and and then ultimately resulting in the in the deaths of all the these pilots um so we do see that happen uh, so uh, you, you can decide whether you think that's a good idea or not. I, I suppose it's only natural that they thought they would show it in the, in the movie because it's so easy, so much easier for them to do so. But it, um, it is a, it's a very, very good overall, I would say, film uh, that's not that well-known uh, as opposed to some other films uh, at the time that were far less successful, for example, The Glass Menagerie. Um, uh, there were a lot of movies made back in the day of plays that were not that well done and then later were redone as TV films, uh, sometimes multiple times. Uh, so I guess you can't keep a good story down. <laughs> Maybe you there. can't keep a good story down, but you can certainly keep the Death of a Salesman 1951 movie down. I don't know why this doesn't show up. It was a very successful movie, I would think. I, I, I can't say that I know that for a fact in terms of business. I don't know if it did any business. Hmm. What I do know is that it did get five Oscar nominations um, for Frederick March playing Willie Loman and yes. Kevin McCarthy playing one of the boys and Mildred Dunnock playing uh, the wife. Um, the cinematography got a nomination. So the music. And um, how bad could it be? Why has this never surfaced um, on, on VHS or DVD? I have no idea. If anybody knows, please tell me, because I'd really like to know the reason why. What is holding up this picture? And I remember back in 1996, 1996 when I was at the um, Last Frontier Theater Conference um, to be on panels, um, Arthur Miller was there, and um, uh, they were honoring him, and uh, they were having a retrospective of all the films. And I was so excited 
excited because finally I was going to see the death of a salesman film. No, they had the Dustin Hoffman TV version, which is fine. Don't misunderstand me. Nothing against that. But I want to see the Frederick March one. And um, it's just impossible to find. You know, I just um, put it in on Amazon and it lo- and I came up with what looks like it, I guess, must be a bootleg I see. Uh, hmm. But it says, yeah, Mildred Dunnick, Cameron Mitchell. And yeah, I, I suppose that's a, a catch-22 situation, Peter. It, for whatever reason, it's unavailable, and therefore nobody knows it. But I've never seen it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. All right. So I guess that wraps it up for today. Uh, before we go, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, you'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast. You can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yeah!